Hello, I'm Robert Bomander, and I am a big ear birder. Hello, Robert. Welcome, Robert. It's a safe place for big ear birders. Thank you. This is the Big Ear Podcast, my journey across North America to talk to and see what makes big ear birders tick. It is July 2nd, 2023, as I broadcast from my secret big ear recording location. It is a rainy day, and I'm stuck indoors, not willing to brave the elements for anything but the rarest bird sightings. It's a far cry from what I or anyone else doing a big year would do. Stay inside and stay dry, just for my own personal comfort. But big year birders brave the weather and more in quest of their goals. This is episode 7, if I am doing my math correctly, and in previous episodes we have talked to ABA big year birders. But beginning with this episode, we are going to focus on my home province of Ontario, Canada. In 2022, while I was gallivanting all across Canada, a group of five intrepid birders had dedicated themselves to an Ontario big year. Three of the top five birders, Ezra Campanelli, William Cons, and Kaya Jasper, all broke the all-time Ontario big year record. Two other birders, though, Susan and Andy, were not that far behind. Though they did not break any records, their stories are just as interesting and dare I say compelling as big ears come in all shapes and sizes and are often as much a personal journey as they are attempts to break any records. Over the next five episodes we'll get to know Kaya, William, Ezra and Andy but today we have Susan Nagy from London, Ontario who recorded 335 species in Ontario whose big year began with a challenge from a friend to see which one of them could see the most birds that year. But rarities and the fun of competition turned what was just a friendly competition into her own big year and, well, helped her finish in the top five in Ontario during what was one of the greatest provincial big years ever. So enjoy part one of my salute to the birders of the 2022 Ontario big year. Susan, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into birding and how you got into doing a big year. Was it intentional or accidental? It was a little of always enjoyed birding and photography, but I didn't really start seriously birding until 2019 when I joined eBird and started tracking and, mm-hmm. and making my life list and that kind of thing. And then in 2021, a girlfriend challenged me to see who could get the most birds in Ontario in 2021. So that year, I thought I was doing very well. I was at about 250 when I was informed that and I thought that was, for me, a big year. And somebody said, oh, no, in Ontario, a big year, 300 birds. So I started giving that some thought. And another friend of mine, we decided we would try a big year in 2024. We thought in 2024, it gives us a couple of years to really do some research, learn more about bird sounds. And it's a leap year. <laughs> and it's a leap year, extra year, and we both have big birthdays that year. We were planning for 2024, and then on January, I think it was January 12th or 13th, we went out and found three rarities in one day. We thought to ourselves, maybe we should just do it now. We can't travel anyway for COVID. And so we changed our mind and decided to do it this year instead. But then our goal at the time was to see and photograph 300 birds. So as we got later in the year, and then I started seeing, oh, I can do more than 300. (laughs) So getting to 300 is the goal, but at what point did you say, wow, we can keep going and maybe get 330? What did you end up with, by the way? I ended up with 
for 335. And what that put you in fourth or fifth place? Uh, fifth place. I was right behind. I was behind Andy. Oh, okay. He ended up with 337, maybe. And, and so. Yes, he was a little, he got very competitive at the end. <laughs> and it was funny because, so in June, I hit my 300th bird. It was the Kirtland Swarbler. And then I started thinking, okay, I do have a shot to, to be maybe in the top 10. And, but my problem was I was going away for the month of October. So I was, I really had to put the, I really was working hard up until my, I left because mm -hmm. I was out of Ontario. And then when I came back, I think I was maybe in seven or eighth place. So it was a, it was quite a, a busy <laughs> few weeks when I got back. What got you into birding in the first place? How young were you when you started thinking, I love photographing birds? Because before I was ever a birder, I was a nature photographer and a bird photographer, even though I had no idea what the names of the birds were beyond Robin and Cardinal. I know that I started a life list back in 1990. So that was quite some time ago. But really, I think on my life list, I had maybe 75 birds when I started looking at e-birds. I just didn't keep it up seriously. And I just enjoyed, I liked going to Florida every year in the winter and photographing the birds. That was me. That's what I did for work for over 30 years. I went to Florida and that's where I started photographing birds and wildlife there. And I think it was that was my kind of spur into going in full out into birding. I, I would agree. Probably Florida. I've always enjoyed it. I remember going up northern Ontario too and seeing some different woodpeckers mm. and my dad and I both enjoyed it. We both had binoculars, and the rest of the family really wasn't into it as much. But we, my dad and I used to go hiking and with our binoculars, and we enjoyed that together. But I think everyone who goes for a hike can discover that hiking is so much better with binoculars. It just changes your perspective on everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. What were some of the challenges that you had in getting up into the top echelon in terms of travel, in terms of cost, in terms of your life outside of birding? I was really fortunate in that a friend of mine, the first six months of the year, we worked very closely together. Who was your friend? Was that? Diane. Yeah, Diane Weiler. And so we went out a lot and we went to, and my husband as well, Jim, the three of us did a lot of traveling and Diane and I also did a lot, especially locally together. And we in, went to Rainy River in May and June. And then, yeah, and then when we got back, we were a bit tired for a while. <laughs> and then sort of life, other things started taking over. We went, Jim and I went to Manitoba for 10 days. So, and then... I think some of the challenges, though, for me, we I made a couple of decisions that I wouldn't do if I was doing a big year again, which would be going out of province for so many times. That's a big deal, yes. Yeah. But also, we went to Healy Island a couple of times to, for me to chase a yellow-breasted cat. I remember that, yes. I never did get it, and but it cost me a couple of birds because I was away and I couldn't get the island. And a yellow-breasted cat though not an everyday bird going way out of your way to get it is probably especially on at, during migration on Pili, is probably 
a decision that you now know can be changed. And, and that's one thing about people who do multiple big years is they have so much more experience to say, why would I go for a bird that I can see three other times just because it's the first of the year? Yes. So as far as chasing, you, you mentioned three rarities that you got in one day. Yes, they were the mountain bluebird, golden crown sparrow, the Harris sparrow. That's a nice haul of rare birds for one day. I was in Long Point the day that the lark sparrow and the Eurasian tree sparrow showed up. Did you get to there for that? Yes, I did. I got both of those. Were you away from the area or were you just happening to be a bird in the area that day? No, I, we went specifically to get those two birds. For me, it was a lot of fun because we were going to Long Point anyway, but we were at the house where the lark sparrow was and we were all having a good time. And then it was on the left side of this bush next to a trailer. And while I was looking at it, the Eurasian tree sparrow just hopped out of the bushes. And two of us were like, is that the Eurasian tree sparrow? And it, it was probably one of the most unexpected and thrilling birds of the year because we were there for one bird, and really you don't expect a Eurasian tree sparrow every year, and we were just there. That's the first time that's ever happened to me. Uh, I think Diane might have been there that day with you, because I, she was, she saw them both at the same spot. Yes. I saw the Eurasian tree sparrow over at Old Cut. Oh, okay. It moved. Oh, that's right. I remember when it yeah. moved over there. I went there the next day to see if I could see it again, and I couldn't find it at the Old Cut that day. Traveling, I went to when I went to Manitoba with my husband in July. We we detoured over back over to Rainy River because I wanted to get the Franklin skull. And I did get the Franklin skull, but then later on in the year it showed up in Blenheim, so it was just I could have had it <laughs> without going all well, the way. I I didn't have to worry about Franklin skulls because I saw them out west, but I did get the first of year Franklin skull for Ontario down in Long Point at, on the beach and I was hoping it was a laughing gull <laughs> but I missed all the laughing gulls in Ontario but I was in New Brunswick to get one there and that was I only got one that, you know, last year too. What was the rarest bird that you saw? Was it the Eurasian tree sparrow or was there another one that you can say wow that was? The rarest? The marsh sandpiper. Everybody's saying that one and I, I keep forgetting about it every time <laughs> someone asks me I say the stellar sea eagle but the oh, wow. The Mars Sandpiper was, for me, a scary one because I was in Vancouver and I was supposed to be there for two more days. And as soon as I heard about it, I got online with Air Canada and changed my flight. And you're coming from the West Coast, the East Coast, and it's getting later and later in the day and you want to get home and drive straight to it before it's dark. And it ended up staying an extra day anyway, but that was for me the most exciting chase that I had because I had to come all the way across the country for it. Did you have a bird that was on your radar that you wanted to see and you never got to during the course of the year? The, the yellow-breasted cat was probably my nemesis bird, I guess you would call it, because I did go after it several times. When it was seen at Peely, I went to Peely Island a couple of times. So that would be the one, I guess. The one that got away? <laughs> yeah. And I also missed a Kentucky Warbler several times. By minutes. Just by mm. minutes. I waited and waited. And actually, I was in Long Point. Oh, you, oh, you, oh that's what I think I remember you coming to Long Point after I saw it. The main so, road just past the, the gate. That's right. 
called me. He was in Point Healy, and he asked me if I wanted to go with him to taste the scissor tail fly catcher. So that's what I did. So I missed the Kentucky Warbler then, and then the next day I went back again for it, and I was in Long Point again when we heard about a tufted duck being seen at Point Healy. <laughs> so we went over the duck. But we did get the tufted duck, thankfully. And, but I never did get the warbler. I missed only one warbler all year, and that was the worm-eating warbler. I missed that one as well. And yeah. that was, that was for me, that was a disappointment because that was a bird that I should have got. But I think I was late for it in Peely, and I was late for it in Rondeau, and I didn't have any other sightings. I, I'll say that because I was across the country when the scissor tail flycatcher showed up, that one almost broke my heart. But I didn't hear about it until after I got back and I heard that other people had seen it. That was a, Those are great birds. We had a few years ago, we had a scissor tail and a fork tail flycatcher in the same year. Within wow. about four, when, that's when Cody was doing his big year. And those were two really great birds. One of the things I love about birding that never really occurred to me until... I really started was sometimes birding isn't necessarily about the bird but it's the places that it takes you and I'm sure there were some places in Ontario you had never been before that were unexpected and just made you think wow I'm glad I'm birding because I would never have been here. Oh absolutely we saw so many beautiful spots driving out to Rainy River I've just never been up on the northern side of Lake Superior before mm-hmm. then. So we saw, yeah, many beautiful spots, and that was for sure. It was Rainy River your favorite? My favorite destination? Probably not. It was a great destination for mm-hmm. sure. We saw lots of new birds on the way. I'm just trying to think. It's tough because it was certainly there were spots along. Oh, I guess Rossport. I liked Rossport on the way. I'm unfamiliar with it. So where is Rossport? It's a little town between. I'm gonna say it's east of. Thunder Bay, so okay. it was on the way, but it just seems to be a great spot for getting birds. We went mm. back again, so we went there twice, mm. and it's a small town, they have lots of theaters, they have some cute little houses, there's some water there, and it just seems to attract some good migrants. So- oh, neat. I'll have to keep that in mind next time I drive up north. How many times did you do drives that were 15, 16 hours that you thought, oh my God, I just never want to drive a car again. Thankfully for me, my husband drove most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when when Sue and I go out for trips is I drive most of the time and then I say, okay, I need an hour break. (laughs) Yeah, and I got into taking my laptop, so I was downloading photos and recording them. So you you made good use of your passenger time then. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And... That's one of the things that a lot of us who did our big years on our own have to cope with is the sort of the lonely nights and eating alone in restaurants and packaged food in hotel rooms. You at least had a companion for most of it, I think. Absolutely. I did a few things by myself, but most of the time I was with either Diane or Jim or both of us. My sister was very helpful in the end. So when I got back from Africa, November the we got back the first week in November. Oh, wait, you buried the lead. You were in Africa. Yeah. See, that's, that trip had been planned, of course, and postponed a couple of years because of COVID. And so I, I couldn't obviously give that up. I, no, I know. <laughs> so the trip, that trip cost me probably five or six birds, but well worth it. No, oh, yeah. So you probably got a lot of lifers on that trip. 
So when we got back on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, I was driving to Windsor to get the Tropical Kingbird. Thursday, I was driving back to Oshawa to get the Purple Gallinule. I remember those trips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, I always, I almost always had someone to travel with, which was nice, but we did find it challenging to be on the road so much and eating restaurant food or lots of Tim Hortons food. Yeah. And so it, that was, yeah, that was a bit challenging. For mm. sure. One of the things I've enjoyed, especially discovering that some of the smallest towns have some of the nicest restaurants. Did you yes. find that, find just some of these? hole-in-the-wall places that just had food that you'd think you would get in downtown Toronto at the fanciest restaurants for tenth of the price. <laughs> and that's true, and that is, I do enjoy going to the smaller towns and just finding an all a small, independent place. And we also made good use of Airbnbs. When we did, we brought food where we could, so just to have some home-cooked meals, which was nice. Yes, I we, uh, we've started using Airbnbs, and I used a few of those as I was traveling across Canada myself. And depending on where I am and what's available, a lot of times I just stuck to the Holiday Inns. But I find, especially when I'm traveling with Sue, that the Airbnbs are really the way to go, especially going to Peely and Rondo and places like that during the spring. Absolutely. You get to spread out a little bit more, and it's more comfortable. And I just like just to cook, even if you're just cooking breakfast. Just a, a little bit more comfortable and homey, I think. What was the coldest, most harsh day you had to bird in the winter to chase a bird? Because I know a lot of them who went up way up north to get ptarmigans and things like that. Did you end up with one of those trips? Not, no, I didn't go on one of those crazy trips like those guys did. <laughs> but I did go, we were in Algonquin once. And it was minus 29 with a wind chill of minus 40. And I remember that was the coldest day for sure. And we were looking for the black-backed woodpecker, which we did finally get. That mm -hmm. was nice. I tromped through snow that I think was two foot deep to find a pair of black-backed woodpeckers up there. I got lucky the day I was up there. It was like minus five. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so it wasn't as bad. But I did get my hoary red pole at the feeder when I was up in Algonquin. Were you able to be there when it was there? No, I didn't get the hoary red pole. No, no, I got the hoary in Ottawa. So, oh, nice. Uh, but Algonquin, they had a lot of nice birds when we were there. I traveled through Quebec and New Brunswick during some of the worst driving conditions I can ever remember. Did you have a, a scary moments on the road? Yeah, the worst day Diane and I had was when we went to see the Townsend Solitaire in mm. near Chicago. Yes. It was a terrible storm that day, and yeah, it was scary. We regretted that, and you know, and then, of course, it stayed around for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> of course. The and then Jim and I had some, some uh, scary conditions going up. We went up to Sudbury and Thessalon to get the spotted toey. We drove through some rough roads there, but not, Townsend was the worst for mm. going to yeah, there, there were just times where I know that if it wasn't for birds, there would be no chance I'd be on those roads. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what birds can make you do. I know, it's kind of silly when you think about it. <laughs> it is. There are so many different crazy hobbies that people do, and I don't think any of them have the kind of community that birders have. And that is, I think, 
really unique in the outdoor adventure genre. Yeah, that's true. Like we met so many great people and it really is a good, the Bergen community is really a great community in Ontario, I discovered. And everybody was there to help. We were, there was some competition going there, but they all shared the birds. Like nobody was trying to keep, ooh, I got this bird and I'm not going to tell anybody else so I can gain a bird on them. There was none of that. That's one of the things that is interesting when it comes to the competition aspect of birding is that even if you're tied with a fellow competitor and there's a bird that they saw that you didn't, they're going to help you get that bird even if it means you jumping ahead of them. Exactly. And uh, is that how Andy beat you? <laughs> what did you help get Andy get that, that he might have gotten advantage on you there? And that, that's actually something I'm enjoying uh, about the podcast is I'm talking to some of the best birders in North America and so many of them are women in what 10 years ago was male-dominated big year competitions. And so many women are getting into it and proving that they're as good, if not better, birders than some of the famous world traveler birders. So it's nice to see. What would be a piece of advice that you'd give to some young birders who are seeing some of the more experienced birders running around the province doing big years? What kind of advice would you give them in terms of when to do it, what to learn before you do it, and some of the pitfalls that you think you could avoid in the future? Okay, certainly save up some money because hmm. there's a lot of traveling. Yeah, learn as much as you can about the birds. Try and learn the sounds of the birds. Do your research because you tend, especially in the beginning, to go chasing after these birds that might be rare here in January, but they're a dime a dozen in April or the fall. Right. And so really do your research about the timing of the birds and plan out your schedule that way. But it's tough. It's tough to wait until the fall when that, if you don't know what happens if I don't see it that fall or what happens. But really, I would say that's probably one of the bigger things. And also, as I mentioned before, I probably wouldn't do something like Peely Island again in a big year where you mm -hmm. can't go chasing. You're stuck somewhere and can't go right away if a rare bird turns up elsewhere. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Was there a point during the year where you were standing somewhere in the middle of nowhere? You're either getting rained on or it's... 30 degrees with humidity and you think what the heck am I doing why how did I even get myself in this position where you had to where you had to give yourself a little pep talk to keep going oh absolutely I can't 
pick something off the top of my head, but I remember that feeling for sure. Mm. <laughs> Thinking, is it worth it? Okay. And even when I got to 300 saying, okay, I've got my goal. This is what I set out to do. Although my goal was to see and photograph 300. So when I did hit 300, there were still a number of birds that I didn't really get photographed of. That was part of my, the last half of the year was trying to improve on those photographs. And how many did you end up photographing? 332. That's very good. That's very good. I don't know how many of the birds I got photographs of, but some of them, some of the rare ones were heartbreaking not to get photographs of because you just want to say, look, I have the picture. I did see it. <laughs> and you can't always, you can't always do that. They don't always hang around for such a thing. Did you get a photograph of the yellow rail at uh, Ashbridge's? No, no, I missed the yellow rail. I missed the Arctic turn. And the parasitic Jaeger, I didn't get a photo of, but uh, everything else I did. Although I have to say, my photo of the American woodcock, you'd have to take my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, at Peely, we had a really nice, very cooperative woodcock on one of the trail that's on the opposite end of the parking lot from the, from the visitor center. Oh. There was a woodcock doing a nice little, little dancey walk, which is so cool. Oh, nice. I actually live in a neighborhood in Brantford where the woodcocks breed. So that's oh, nice. fun in the spring to listen to them calling at dusk. And then every once in a while, you get to see them walking their babies across the path, which is really cool. Oh, nice. uh, the photo I have is when they were doing the display and then they go up in the air yes. and they circle around and back down. So the photo I have is in the air. I have one of those two that is just a blob in the dusk <laughs> that, that you have to circle it with red and point, put an arrow and say, Woodcock. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm glad you enjoyed doing your big year. Is it something you would do again and with now that you have a little bit more experience? Funny you should say that. Because? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not interested in doing another Ontario thing. I've done that and... I'm also not interested in doing some of the crazy drives up to northern Ontario, although I would like to go up there someday. But I, my husband and I just started talking about, wouldn't it be nice to do a Canada picture? <laughs> I just finished one. It is a very daunting task and very expensive. There's, a, there's two ways to do it. There's the way I did it, where I chased everything back and forth across the country for 365 days. The other way to do it, which I would like to do someday, is start in Newfoundland and the very furthest portion of Newfoundland that you can get to on January 1st, and then drive all the way to Vancouver Island, or take the, <laughs> the ferry to Vancouver Island, and do that over the course of several weeks, and then make your way back to Newfoundland. You could also do from where you live to Newfoundland, all the way back to Vancouver and then the BC and then back home. That would probably be maybe a six month trip if you could do it with a camper. How are you thinking of if you do decide to do it one year? To be honest, we just started talking about it a couple of days ago, so it's very fresh. <laughs> and But our thought is we love to travel in Canada. We've talked about doing it. And so it wouldn't be a trip quite like you did. I'm wouldn't be going for the record to mm. say for me i'd be happy say 400 or mm. and so just really research it out hit all the provinces and the territories and see 
get as many birds as we can, but really doing it most like, doing it mostly driving. I think, but not necessarily. Mm. We haven't really explored too much. If we broke it up a little bit, and we flew say to Manitoba, we have some family there, and go there, and then drive and do Manitoba and Saskatchewan at West Park, and yeah. and maybe drive out east. So we're really not sure yet, but I probably would like to talk to you more about it. We can do that anytime you want, because I could have done it better than I did. I'm hoping is that Bruce Diablo beats it by one at the end. <laughs> so there is no question who has the record at the end of the year. <laughs> he chased me all year, too. Yeah, he was one behind you at the end? Yes, and that was, that was because I had missed the sharp-tailed grouse all year. And I drove, which is ironic, I drove all the way up to north, just past Manitoulin Island to get one, which I did. And then a week or so later, I was driving back up there for the Lewis's Woodpecker, (laughs) which was not during the same year, which was unfortunate. I could have got one more. I was at the point on December 30th, I got the grouse and I was thinking... There is a bird in Newfoundland that I could have gone for, and I had the decision to make to say, how much do I need to, I was out of money as well. My budget was gone, and my budget was gone. That's why I decided to do the drive up for the sharp-tailed grouse than to fly anywhere. But I would have to from find a flight from Sudbury to St. John's, and hope that bird was still there on December 31st to be able to get it and then fly home on New Year's Day. And that was the point where I was, you know what, enough is enough. And I far exceeded what I wanted to do anyway. So I said, no, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the last drive home because it was 10 hours to get home from up in Sudbury and just call it a year. And I was hoping, of course, for one last gasp rare bird and somewhere close to home on the way back, yeah. that that didn't materialize. So yeah, that, that's one of the toughest parts of uh, when you're doing Canada Big Year and Ezra and Kaya can tell and William can tell you about the last days of doing the Ontario Big Year. It's that decision to say on December 30th, you know what, I've had a good year, it's time to take a deep breath and just enjoy what I did. Exactly. So if you yeah. do a Canada Big Year, I will be there to help you all the way through. Oh, thank you. 2024 you. with the leap year. No, uh, we're not doing 2024. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. We're looking at 25 or 26 maybe. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a joy to talk to you. I know we didn't get to run into each other too much during the course of the year, but it was nice at the near the end with meeting up with you and Andy looking for that glaucus wing gull. Yeah, that was fun. Too bad we didn't get it. Did you run off and look for something else that day? Because I know there was something else Andy gave up and went to look for something else, but I can't remember what it was. Trying to think what, because uh, the, the last few I got were the dove key was 334, which that was exciting because I got that they, the Palmer and Jaeger was 333, and I, we were in Hamilton when the dove key was being seen in Toronto. Oh, and so you obviously raced to Toronto for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, we waited because it was just seen once, and then there was somebody there with us, and they said maybe it'll fly this way because it went.
wind were blowing this way. And then they said, no, it's been spotted again. So we got in the car and drove right over. Coming back from a flight from Vancouver, and even though I had seen Dovekey in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, I had never seen one for the Ontario list. So I got to the airport, I got my car, and it was 4 o'clock, and it was still there. And I thought, do I really want to drive from Pearson to Asbridge's Bay at 4 o'clock on a weekday? I said, no. Would have done it for a forktail flycatcher, but not for Dubkey. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your 2023 birding year. I'm sure it's going to be a little more relaxed. Definitely. And uh, hope to see you out on the trails. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed thanks talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Once again, thanks to Susan for sharing your story. I found it amusing that she kind of buried the lead that she was in Africa during part of her big year. That's an adventure in and of itself and somewhere I've never been to. Even so, missing weeks in Ontario, she still managed to see 335 species, which is quite remarkable. So join me next time as I sit down with my birding buddy, Andy, who did his own big year on a tight budget while working and going to school and finished in fourth place. Until you next hear me again, get out there and find some rare birds for me to chase. Until next time, may the birds be with you. As for me, I'm going to stare out the window and hope that the rain rain will finally go away.